Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Cher. Beautiful. So yesterday, you may have heard, was Independence Day, right? July 4th, you may have heard some fireworks, etc. And I'd like to invite us along those lines to spend a few, few minutes this morning reflecting on how we've used as a nation historically and today that hard-won independence. As the saying goes, on the other side of liberation, one needs to check, am I now truly free or am I merely cast adrift? It's not only about freedom from, it's not only about freedom from British tyranny, freedom from taxation without representation. Side note, may we get that for DC someday soon. So it's not just about freedom from, it's also about freedom for. That also matters. What have we used our freedom for? Will we create a nation, for example, of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all? As one way of exploring this question, I'd like to invite us to spend a few minutes this morning reflecting on our U.S. Constitution, how we've come to understand it and why, and how we might read it differently and better in order to truly form a more perfect union. And although there is part of me that would love to just say, let's just settle in for a few hours and pour over the nuances of recent support Supreme Court rulings, that's like my idea of a good time or one of them. Uh, I'm going to limit myself just to a few quick notes about three recent decisions. Each case is in many ways really good news, the three that I'm going to share with you, but the, the fine print is actually quite troubling if you read past the headlines, even if it's good news, at least in the short term. First, let's look at Bostock versus Clayton County. It's stunning that until three weeks ago, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens of this country could be fired in half the states of this union, in 25 states, simply for their sexual orientation or gender identity, fired from their jobs. That sort of cruel discrimination is now unconstitutional thanks to a 6-3 Supreme Court decision that, again, in many ways, is extremely good news. So by all means, celebrate. But I also want us to notice that if you read past the headline into the logic that's behind how that decision was made, there are some very troubling implications long term. Very briefly, that ruling turned on just three words from Title VII in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits discrimination because of sex. Those three words, the justices went on at length about because of sex. Get this. Justice Gorsuch, writing for the majority, said, quote, those who adopted the Civil Rights Act might not have anticipated that their work would lead to this particular result, but the limits of the drafter's imagination supply no reason to ignore the law's demands. When the express terms of a statute give us one answer and extra textual considerations suggest another, it is no contest, at least for Gorsuch. He concludes, only the written word is the law and all persons are entitled to its benefit. This decision is a form of what is known as textualism. It's a form of constitutional interpretation that pays attention only to the plain text of the document. I would add, allegedly. 
And the liberal justices signed on because the end result of stopping discrimination for LGBTQ plus citizens was so important, even if they would have used a different logic to reach a similar decision. And as you may have begun to guess, that's where I'm going with this, is an invitation to consider that long-term, the way we reach constitutional decisions is at least as important as the decisions that get made. Here's a second recent example that in many ways is also really good news. In Department of Homeland Security versus the Regents of the University of California, the Supreme Court held that in order to rescind DACA, a Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, an immigration program, they ruled it arbitrary and capricious. And, and they're absolutely right. It, it, the attempt to do that was arbitrary and capricious. And that means that more than 600,000 undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children, so it wasn't their choice to come here, uh, they're saved from deportation, at least for now. So to reach this decision, the Chief Justice joined the four liberal justices for a five to four decision. So it almost went the other way, and those 600,000 plus DACA um, folks were almost deported. But as one commentator said, if you read below the headline, it is clear Chief Justice Roberts is not a closet progressive. It's that the current administration is just extraordinarily bad and sloppy at administrative law, and Chief Justice Roberts is not putting up with it. So, good news for now, but further challenges could well be coming to DACA and likely will, since the Chief Justice explicitly laid out ways in that decision um, for here's how I likely would vote in favor of um, deporting those folks. The current situation leaves the proverbial sword of Damocles hanging over the dreamers, and what we need is comprehensive immigration reform that allows them to become U.S. citizens or at least legal permanent residents. Turning to our third case, the situation is similar. In June, Medical Services versus Russo, the Chief Justice again joined the four liberals in a five to four decision that easily could have gone the other way, and it struck down a Louisiana state law as unconstitutional for placing hospital admission requirements on abortion clinic doctors that create an undue burden for women choosing abortion. In many ways, this decision, it's great news for reproductive justice. And as with the previous two decisions, however, if you read past the headline, the Chief Justice, again, is sort of explicitly laying out ways for how he would likely rule differently if just a few changes were made. That doesn't bode well long term. And although there's so much more to say about these and other recent Supreme Court decisions, there's a larger point that I want to get to. And if this um, sermon leaves you curious to learn more, there's a book that I'm drawing on that I would certainly commend to you. I'll, I'll show you that on my screen. So this book is We the People um, by Erwin Chemerinsky. It's subtitled A Progressive um, Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. Chemerinsky is dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. As someone who grew up Southern Baptist and spent a long time learning to interpret the text of the Bible in a progressive as opposed to a fundamentalist way, I have a similar fascination with learning to interpret the Constitution in a progressive instead of a fundamentalist way. With learning to interpret it in a way that's in alignment with our UU6 principle of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. And I particularly appreciate Chemerinsky's emphasis on the 
preamble of our constitution that's too often been neglected in our history. That it's the little tiny part up there at the top, right? I'll, I'll read it to you. Some of you may have really good vision and can read it for yourselves. That we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, do these things, right? Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Chemerinsky makes a compelling argument linked to historical precedent that the preamble can provide a touchstone for interpreting the Constitution through a progressive um, emancipatory lens. I'll say more about this um, result soon. But first, I want to say just a little bit more about its opposite, the so-called textualist approach that is currently dominating the Supreme Court. And here as well, I can't help um, stop myself from spotting parallels to how fundamentalists often interpret the Bible. I've just spent so many hours, maybe some of you have as well, arguing with people who would tell me, you know, I don't want women to be second-class citizens. I don't want LGBTQ plus folks to, to see them, their lifestyle as a sin, their way of being as a sin, but that's what the Bible says. Don't blame me. I'm just doing what the Bible says. I would say, and I've come to see very clearly, that, uh, that, they are, that that stance is reading the Bible selectively, superficially, and problematically. And that's the same for sort of fundamentalist um, constitutional interpretation. I can see the appeal in wanting to claim I'm just neutrally interpreting the law, or as our current Chief Justice has often said, I'm, I'm just an umpire, man. But neutrally interpreting the text is actually impossible to do. We human beings are always already operating from some particular and peculiar point of view that is shaped by our social location. The historian Howard Zinn said really clearly, you can't be neutral on a moving train. To do nothing is to support the status quo. Um, or as I think Ibram Kendi, for those of you reading his incredibly important book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he's super clear. There is no neutral not racist. You're either being anti-racist or you're supporting racism, which is the current entrenched system. So much more to say about all of that. And if we had time, I'd love to go through case after case of examples of how individual Supreme Court decisions are never simply neutral interpretations. And for those of you, if you want a deep dive, by all means, um, Chemerinsky's book is short, is accessible, and he does that. So check out his book, We the People. For now, I will limit myself to one representative example of what I'm talking about. Some of you will know who this is. Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. Before Scalia's death, they were somewhat of a famous odd couple, long-time long friends who often went to the opera together, even though they strenuously disagreed about the Constitution. And here's the vitally important part. Justices Scalia and Ginsburg disagreed about almost every major case that came before the Supreme Court, but it wasn't because one was smarter or understood constitutional law better or that one avoids decisions based on value judgments and one's being neutral. Rather, their disagreements reflect their differing ideologies, their differing life experiences, and their different worldviews. 
Now, Scalia and his would-be successors currently um, serving on the court would have you believe they're merely interpreting the Constitution neutrally, and that Ginsburg and other liberals, they're the so-called judicial activists. But I urge you not to fall for that seduction any more about the Constitution any more than you would fall for a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible or any other sacred text. Uh, the one way I've said, and I learned this from Dale Martin at Yale, uh, that it's a, it really abdicates responsibility. Just saying the Bible made me do it or the text made me do it, you are responsible. You are responsible for the truth, goodness, morality, and social effect of your interpretation. So to say what I mean, uh, more about what I mean by way of contrast, let me say more about what it looks like to interpret the Constitution in a progressive way using the preamble as a touchstone. Chemerinsky's challenge uh, is for us to consider that constitutional interpretation should be based on achieving the core values of the Constitution and that it fails when it doesn't do that. And that the starting point should be the beginning. Let's start with the beginning. Start with the starting point, the preamble. The preamble lays out the clear intent of the people writing the Constitution. That is to form a government that is democratic, that is effective, that is just, and that is liberatory. I'll say more very quickly about each point in turn. Democratic. Those opening three words, we the people, mean that this constitution is not intended to create a monarchy, a theocracy, or a totalitarian regime. This um, constitution is in intended to be a more perfect union. It is effective. The words a more perfect union mean that the United States is intended to work increasingly well. So I'm gonna have to stop this for a second and um, I've got these slides going. Um, I'm just gonna stop the share for a second. So I have those slides um, going bullet point by bullet point, which is gonna go way too slow. So let's just do it this way. Um, so democratic, we the people. Uh, our constitution is about we the people and has failed if we ever end up with a monarchy, if we ever end up with a theocracy, or if we ever end up with a totalitarian regime that undermines the democracy of we the people. It's meant to be effective. The words a more perfect union mean that the United States is intended to work increasingly well to provide domestic tranquility at home, common defense against external threats, and general warfare for all of our citizens. This um, characterized by justice, the, the words establishing justice, by liberty, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and posterity. Those are the reasons, democracy, effective governance, justice and liberty. That's why our founders said we do ordain and establish this constitution of the United States of America. And if there's one word missing, it's arguably equality. And since this is July 4th weekend, let us remember that the Declaration of Independence proclaims all men are created equal, but the Constitution didn't do that. Indeed, let's be honest that the original Constitution is deeply sexist and racist, giving no rights to women and explicitly institutionalizing and protecting slavery. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution counts enslaved human beings as three-fifths of a person. Article 1, Section 9 prohibits Congress from any restrictions on importing human beings for at least 20 years. So all these like enslavers got together and said, let's keep doing this terrible human rights abuse at least 20 years. Let's make sure we get that in writing. 
It was not until after the Civil War that we the people voted to change our Constitution with the 14th Amendment to include a core value of equality, that we haven't fully lived into that 14th Amendment. We did it through, quote, equal protection under the law. That was the first reconstruction of our nation. The civil rights movement brought a second reconstruction of our nation. The Reverend Dr. William Barber and others in the Revitalized Poor People's Campaign are calling us to a third reconstruction, to live more fully into the dream of a more perfect union with peace, liberty, and justice increasingly for all, not merely for some. Again, I said earlier, if this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, I encourage you to check out Chemerinsky's We the People. But if that leaves you wanting more, another excellent book that I just don't even have time to get into this morning that I read while researching this sermon is titled Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-Year Battle for a More Unjust America by Adam Cohen. There have been periods in our nation's history when the Supreme Court has much more frequently hewed to a progressive interpretation of the Constitution, but that has not been the case in the past 50 years. Since I don't have time to get into all the details of Cohen's book, I'll limit myself to just one major quote. His tour through the last five decades of constitutional law highlight all the ways that the Supreme Court has often chosen to interpret the Constitution in recent decades in ways that sided with the rich and powerful against the weak and poor in virtually all areas of the law. And it's important to underscore that in so many of those cases, choices were made. Often one or two votes in a different direction could have changed a majority opinion from supporting the powerful and rich to supporting the marginalized and oppressed. And again, remember Scalia and Ginsburg. It's not that one was smarter, or you know, as, as some people would have you believe, or, or one was being activist and one was being neutral. Both sides have ideologies and pay attention to who benefits from those ideologies. I'll give you just this one quote from Cohen. He says that in retrospect, looking back over the past 50 years and taking account other periods in the Supreme Court history and our nation's history when things were done differently, we can see how different choices could have been made to create a different path over the five, past five decades. It could have been the case that we could have spent the past five decades lifting all families above the poverty line guaranteeing that all children attend schools that are adequately funded and racially integrated, that all elections are decided by the most per persuasive arguments, not special interest money and putting um, the public's interest um, behind the billionaire's interest. We could have had workplaces with far less discrimination and more unions. We could have had prisons with fewer inmates. The court, in other words, could have helped create a society with more equality, inclusion and opportunity for all. And such an America still might be. The fate of our nation, of course, does not rest solely with the Supreme Court, although they have a significant role. Ultimately, it lies with we the people. And I am so encouraged by the movement for Black Lives, our own UU the Vote movement, and so many other actions in which we the people are seeking to build the world we dream about. In that spirit of coming together as we, the people, I want to move toward my conclusion by inviting you to hear a powerful poem. It's titled The Low Road by Marge Percy. It speaks to widening concentric circles of compassion that comprise we, the people, at our best. 
Now know that this is a bit of a hard poem to hear at the beginning. It, it speaks to the many hard and cruel realities of our present moment that I think we need to be honest about, but stick with it. I think you'll appreciate where it ends up. Percy writes, what can they do to you? Whatever they want. They can set you up. They can bust you. They can break your fingers. They can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs till you can't walk can't remember. They can take your child, wall up your lover. They can do anything you can't stop them from doing. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, you can take what revenge you can, but they roll over you. But two, Two people fighting back can cut through a mob, a snake dancing file can break a cordon, an army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, can give hope, support, conviction, love, massage, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. With six, you can rent a whole house, eat pie for dinner with no seconds, and hold a fundraising party. A dozen makes a demonstration, a hundred fills a hall, a thousand have solidarity in your own newsletter, 10,000 power in your own paper, a hundred thousand your own media, 10 million your own country. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again and they say no. It starts when you say we and you know who you mean and each day you mean one more. As I have said at the start of each Sunday service during this pandemic, during this time of physical distancing, social connection and social solidarity across differences remain more important than ever. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with all of you. Let's sing together. We would be one.